Our reading today comes from the Gospel of John in the 17th chapter. And we find Jesus in the middle of a prayer that he is praying for his disciples and who they are and who they are called to be in the world in which they live. So we pick up in the middle of that. This is what he prays. I ask not only on behalf of these disciples, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given them, so that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. Speak to us. Speak to us, O God. Speak to us about who we are, who we were created to be. Challenge us to live out the life that you've set before us. Speak to us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So the slide we've kept up during this series is up there in case you feel like you're lost and need to reorient with some of the info we've been kind of putting out. We're on the last... Sunday of our series on the generations, and what we've learned is that the length of a generation is around 18 to 24 years before another generation begins, 18 to 24 years. We've learned that there are only four types of generations, and that these four types follow a a, a pattern. And a a cycle, they form a cycle, a four-part cycle that repeats itself over and over and over again. And we are in the fourth cycle since the beginning of our country. And the cycle begins with the idealist generation type, followed by the reactives and the civics and the adaptives, and then it starts over. And we've talked about every one of them. We've talked about, and we started actually in the middle of the cycle, we started with the idealist, excuse me, the civic generation that comes of age during a secular crisis like the GI generation did during World War II and the millennial 
generation is currently during our current secular crisis. We've talked about how that's followed by the adaptives who come of age in the time after the secular crisis, an outward-focused time like the silence did during the time after World War II and the great growth of that period where we built all kinds of structures and institutions in those years. We talked about how that's followed then by an oath. If the pattern holds, homelanders will come of age in the outward-focused time that will follow our current secular crisis. We talked about the idealist generation that comes of age during a spiritual awakening and dawning an, an inward time, a spiritual awakening like the boomers of the 60s and 70s coming of age during that time. How that's followed by the reactive generation comes of age during this inward focused time where the world is trying to rediscover what we're about, like the Gen Xers. At some point or another, we have touched on the lives of each and every one of us. How we tend to think. How we tend to behave. How we tend to view the world. And it's been great. It's been great. So now what? What do, we, what do we do with that? What's to come of it? To borrow a question that Paul asks in Roman, Romans 8, what then are we to say about these things? What are we to say? I mean, we all seem so different. We've, we've mentioned how the millennials are complete and polar opposites from the boomers and how Gen Xers are complete and polar opposites from the silence. We're completely different. We're on far sides of the spectrum. How in the world? What in the world is supposed to come of it? Is it even possible for us to be one in the same way that Jesus speaks of in today's reading in his prayer? Is that even possible? I in them and you in me, he prays, so that they may be completely one they may know that you have sent me and you have loved them just as you love me. Is that possible? New Testament professor Jamie Clark Souls seems to think so. She writes about this prayer in her book, Reading John for Dear Life. She talks about this prayer. She mentions how the word, the Greek word for one is mentioned and used 345 times in the New Testament, 32 of which are in the Gospel of John alone, 32 times in the 21 chapters of John. That's a lot. And that when Jesus prays this particular prayer, he's not just making a wish. It's not just magic. He's not wishing upon a star in some fairy tale world. No, instead, in this prayer, Jesus is willing it into being. He is willing it. And because Jesus' will is in line with God's will, it therefore must be true. 
And so all we have to do is act as if it's true. If Jesus is saying to us that we are to be one, one with God, one with each other, then all we have to do is act as if that's actually true right now. Is it that simple? Could it really be that simple? Just act as if it's true? Well, I not only think it's that simple, I believe that that's in fact who we were created to be in the first place. We were created to be one with God. We were created to be one with each other. It's that simple. Problem is, it's not that easy. It's just not easy. It's hard to act as if that's actually true. It's messy. Clark Souls goes on to say that we thrive the most when we are living the lives that we were created and meant to live. Spiritual lives that by design are embodied and communal, part of God's created order. And that our job is not to distance ourselves from the messiness of it all, but is instead to jump in full force. In other words, being one in Jesus Christ is messy business. This prayer that Jesus prays in John, it's part of a larger section that's typically called the farewell discourse. Sounds all romantic and everything. Farewell discourse, right? He prays this prayer. And in that farewell discourse, you see the disciples doing all kinds of detailed, messy life stuff. They wash each other's feet, messy. They talk about their sorrows, share their sorrows and their worries and their concerns, messy. They try to learn, as Jesus teaches them, to be more and more honest and vulnerable and open to one another, messy. It paints the picture that being a disciple is about taking the risk of being in community. That along this journey, we are learning, to, like the disciples in our Gospels, to be more open and vulnerable, right down to the very last messy detail. And it's not easy. It's messy work. I think we tend to often confuse being one in Jesus Christ with everyone getting their own handle and sitting down in a wonderful circle and singing kumbaya and smiling at each other all the time. And that's not the truth. It may include some of those moments, right, that make some of us just giddy with joy and others want to return their lunch to the outside world may include them, but that's not what it's ultimately about. Being one in Jesus Christ doesn't mean that we've all of a sudden discovered the solution to all of our differences. Being one in Jesus Christ does not mean all of a sudden you're going to understand why someone standing right next to you who is a person of faith has a completely different opinion about something you believe is the absolute most crucial thing in the entire world. Not going to get that. That's not what it's about. Being one in Jesus Christ 
is about embracing a higher calling, remaining together despite those things. That we are together not in and of ourselves, but in Christ. And all those things are left to God. It's hard, messy, emotional, spiritual work. We do it, though, because that's who God made us to be, part of God's created order. You want to know what fascinates me the most about this generational guru stuff? <laughs> the thing that fascinates me the most is the, this, this cycle. It's really interesting. The cycle starts, as I said, with the idealist generation type coming of age during, a, like the boomers, coming of age during the spiritual awakening, followed by the reactionist, like Gen X, coming of age in the inward time following that. Then the civics, like the millennials, coming of age in a secular crisis, followed by the adaptives, like the homelanders, coming of age in an outward time. Spiritual awakening, followed by an inward focus. Secular crisis, followed by an outward focus. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. It's almost like the whole thing has a heartbeat, as if it's got a life of its own that continues as if the very essence of who God is is present in the core of this life. As if it's a divine rhythm. It's not unlike the seasons. The seasons, this in and out. In the fall, right? The outside world literally begins to fall and wither, and all the living creatures become less communal as they go into their little hole and begin a time of, of hibernation and, and, and reflection, you know, this individual kind of reflection and enter the winter where you just want to survive the, the thing, I just want to survive it, this inner time. And then in the spring, everything seems to want to burst forth. The tension and the crisis of that bursting forth followed by the summer where everything on the outside is growing and showing off. In, out, in, out. As if the whole deal's got a divine rhythm, a foreordained life that God is deeply part of. Generational movements, it's a lot like Think about it that way. All of a sudden, you have a voice. All of a sudden, each one of us has a role to play, something sacred and holy and human to bring to the world something beautiful. All of a sudden, each generation becomes something not to sneer at, but to become curious about to ask about, to talk about, to share 
with one another. And guess what? It's already happening. It's already happening. Since the very beginning of this series, weeks ago, you've been talking about it. People have told me, you've come up to me, you've said, and to other, other staff and other, you've said, our small group's been talking about this thing, it's really interesting, our Sunday school, we've talked about it. I ran into a friend, I started talking to, about it with him, it's just fascinating. We got into this long, interesting conversation about what, who we are, and you've asked questions of others and their experience of your own generation. You've, you've asked other generations what it's like to be part of that generation, what that's like, and and you've struggled with it. When I put these dates up and asked you to stand, you know, and if you were born between this date and that date, some of you have stood and said, well, I'm part of those dates, but that's not my generation, boy. I'm this one. You've thought about it. You've become curious. You've found a way to become more interested in each other. Now, if that's not God's work in us, then I don't know what is. Because if there's anything I've learned as a pastor, it's that the more you discover about someone else, the more you tend to see them as wondrous and beautiful and holy and human, I in them, and you in me, Jesus prays, that they may be completely one, that they may know that you have loved them just as you love me. Keep it up, I say. Don't stop. If you take nothing else away from this sermon series, keep up your curiosity about one another. Keep talking. Share your experience. Talk about what you think. Why you believe what you do. For the great challenge of people of faith is to learn to listen to a voice other than our own. And what better way to do that than through the language of the generation? For we just might discover the voice of God trying to speak to us all. This is God's work with us. That we may be one in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.